Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Wednesday, January 31st. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, Governor Kemp signs an anti-Semitism bill into law. We'll talk with the bill's biggest advocate at the Capitol. A new crop of alcohol-free businesses capture the spirit of dry January. And we'll talk with a member of Georgia's newest pro sports team, the Atlanta Vibe of the Women's Pro Volleyball Federation. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. Georgia voters could see a watermark on their ballots beginning in November. The State House today approved a measure that supporters say would assure citizens the ballots are authentic. Georgia ballots already have security features. But Valdosta State Representative Republican John LaHood says voters can't see them. The bill reads that um, at least one of the security features on the paper must be visible so that the voter can see it with their eyes. Uh, the current security feature we have is uh, not visible to the human eye. It requires a wand. Some supporters of former President Donald Trump continue to pursue claims that Georgia ballots were forged despite election investigators repeatedly failing to find any. House Bill 976 passed 167 to 1 and now goes to the Senate for debate. Governor Kemp signed into law this afternoon a bill that would add a definition of anti-Semitism to state law. He spoke today at a signing ceremony. There's been a troubling rise in anti-Semitism across our nation in recent years, especially following the horrific terrorist attacks on Israel on October the 7th that claimed the lives of over 1,200 Israelis. These acts of hatred have taken on many forms, including harassment, intimidation, and unfortunately violence. It's been a long time coming for advocates who hope to toughen penalties for those who commit a crime with anti-Semitic intent, Representative Esther Panich, a Democrat and Georgia's lone Jewish lawmaker, spoke with me earlier today at the State House about what the passage of this bill means for her and for the state. Representative Panich, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. How does it feel to finally get this bill passed? I feel a great sense of relief. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and even it even started before I got here. So it's been longer for my co-sponsor, John Carson. But the Jewish community has waited three years for this, and so it's a relief for them as well. You were a victim of anti-Semitic flyering. Now that this bill is in effect, what impact might it have on incidents like that in the future? This bill doesn't attack the flyers, and this bill wasn't brought forth because of the flyers that came before the flyers. But if this person who does the flyering takes the next step, and does something violent against somebody Jewish or defaces their property, then the flyers could be used as evidence of motive to show that this person was acting against Jews and that that was their intent. So the bill will help. It's just not, it wasn't intended for this particular type of event. My understanding is that this does not criminalize a sentiment about Jews or uh, people simply speaking ill of Jewish people. It's, it allows prosecutors to prove intent when something that is already a crime is committed. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. You can say, or anybody can say, the most awful things about Jews, about Israel, uh, and it's not a crime. So it's just if you take an action that's already unlawful, whether it's crime or some type of unlawful discrimination, then prosecutors or investigators can look at this as a motivation to see whether it was anti-Semitic or not. This legislation relies on a definition of anti-Semitism crafted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. 
Why is it important to use that definition? This definition was comprised of scholars, um, people from all over the world. It was comprised in Europe and the United States participated in it to identify the different types of anti-Semitism. We all know what a swastika looks like, but we don't always know when anti-Zionism or anti-Israel sentiment crosses into anti-Semitism. Since October 7th, we've seen a lot of that, but in Europe in 2016, they were able to identify it back then. It, it's already been in Europe. So, uh, and Europe's particularly sensitive given what happened in, in World War II. So this is the gold standard of definitions. It takes into account both the conventional types of anti-Semitism and the contemporary types of anti-Semitism. In a version of this bill last year, a lawmaker tried to incorporate the full definition of anti-Semitism and he changed one word. He changed the word certain perceptions of Jews to negative perceptions of Jews. You objected to that. Why? What is the difference between certain perceptions and negative perceptions in the definition of anti-Semitism? So if somebody harms a Jew because they think they have power, power is a positive perception, not a negative perception. So positive perceptions also get Jews killed or assaulted or harassed or threatened just as negative perceptions do. And the reason that we refer to this definition and we did not want it word for word in the code is for exactly what happened last year when one lawmaker decides he wants to change the entire definition and the meaning of anti-Semitism. Had we allowed that amendment to, change, to stand, it would be more dangerous than not having a definition at all. So that's why we rejected we, we, we tabled it once that amendment was passed and uh, brought it back this year. What impact do you think this legislation is going to have as far as deterrence of anti-Semitic acts? So we have seen in Florida, they have established some statutes uh, about flyering specifically that has resulted in a decrease of anti-Semitic incidents in Florida. So I believe that there is a deterrent effect when a state stands up and says, not only are we going to talk about being against anti-Semitism, we're actually putting the weight of the state behind it. So it's uh, hopefully has a great deterrent effect. We'll have to see. But just like uh, the hate crime statute didn't stop racism, we don't expect the, this definition to stop anti-Semitism. One critic during the Senate hearing on this bill said that the use of this particular definition conflates Judaism with a uh, pro-Israel sentiment. Do you agree with that? So Israel is integral to Judaism. And so it's, it's hard sometimes to separate the two in terms of meaning. But Jews here are not responsible for the government of Israel's actions and shouldn't be held collectively responsible for them. There are plenty of Israelis who disagree with their current administration. Um, but after October 7th, we could see where anti-Israel sentiment crossed directly into anti-Jewish sentiment when you have rallies purporting to be for pro-Palestine turning into gas the Jews. So it's and, and airports in Russia where people, mobs, you know, came to kill the Jews, not kill the Israelis, which would be bad enough, kill the Jews. So we definitely see that it certainly can cross into anti-Semitism, and we need a definition to tell when it's anti-Israel for legitimate reasons and when it's anti-Semitic. Do you think the events since October 7th helped uh, provide the motivation to pass this bill, or was the motivation already there, the language simply needed to be right? 
the, motiv the motivation was there for some. October 7th, I think, showed the rest. What Jews have been dealing with for centuries, and specifically the last few years, when we've been saying anti-Semitism is on the rise. Now they can see it with their own eyes, and if they choose not to see it, it's because they don't want to see it. Representative Esther Panich, thank you so much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. A State House panel is advancing a proposal to reduce the legal burden for proving private ownership of Georgia's coastal marshlands. The House Judiciary Committee approved the measure yesterday. Conservation groups are opposing the bill. Megan DeRosiers of the Coastal Watchdog 100 Miles says it would result in giveaways of prized public marshland to people who don't rightly own it. So essentially, a private landowner can take possession of the salt marsh that the state has been protecting for centuries. And then that private landowner can get paid by a developer to protect that salt marsh that's already been protected, and then they get the credit for it. The bill's Republican supporters say the measure streamlines an unfairly cumbersome legal process for people whose families were granted marshlands by the King of England. The bill now goes to the full House for more debate. State health officials are confirming a second case of measles in Georgia, as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warns of a comeback for one of the most contagious infectious diseases, one that the CDC declared eliminated in the U.S. 24 years ago. The State Department of Public Health says two members of the same Metro Atlanta family came down with measles. Both were unvaccinated for the disease, and one traveled out of the country. The CDC said last week 23 cases, mostly among unvaccinated children, have been reported nationwide since December 1st. The American Academy of Pediatrics reported earlier this month that kindergarten vaccination rates for measles and other diseases have declined in recent years, likely in part due to fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. Today is the last day of dry January. Are you counting the hours before you can resume drinking alcohol? Or maybe you want to continue into dry February. The national trend among some to give up alcohol for the first month of the year coincides with a decline in alcohol consumption generally among young people. Now a new crop of Georgia businesses and social spaces is popping up to cater to a growing group of sober adults. GPB's Amanda Andrews has more. Tucked away in Atlanta's Castleberry Hill neighborhood is a bar. During the day, it's filled with warm light, soft music, and a sprinkling of remote workers. Brightly colored booths and chairs are arranged in tight patterns for intimate conversations. It's cozy. Uh, it felt like a uh, cheers, you know, it's like where everybody knows your name type experience. Like you come in and, you know, the, everybody's just real welcoming. The Sober Social is an alcohol-free bar and coffee shop. And Alex Green has been attending since it opened January of last year. He says he was looking for something different. Because I feel like in Atlanta, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you got to get drunk and turn up. And I just wanted something where I could just like experience good cocktails, but not you know, be like uh, wasted or like part of that community, something chill. Curating a safe and relaxing environment is something owner Aja Wolf takes pride in. She says when the Sober Social does last call, she isn't calling rideshares. Oh yeah, we don't have to worry about that. You're not going to leave here and you're not going to get into an accident. You're not going to harm anybody because of what you were consuming here. When Wolf first opened, she says finding her audience in the city presented some challenges. I feel like the A in Atlanta stands for alcohol. Atlanta is is definitely an alcohol city, <laughs> um, and I'm pushing my way. Now, she's making believers of people who doubted her drinks are any good. Especially my men, they'll come in support of their pregnant wife or a friend that's sober. And they'll be like, no, I'm just here for support. I don't want no juice. 
So I'll give him a drink on the house, taste that, and then decide. You sure no alcohol in this? Give me another one. According to research by the Pew Center, young adults are drinking less than their parents and grandparents did when they were young. But people still want nightlife and a third place outside of home and work. They're tired of breweries. Um, they're tired of waking up hangover. They're tired of having to go to those places to socialize with their friends. Luther Ocasio is an herbalist turned bartender serving what he calls mocktails or potions, even elixirs at a pop-up bar simply called Altered. When people come in here, they're like, oh my God, I've been looking for this place. I've been looking, why don't more places do it? Ocasio says a lot of sober events are for people in substance abuse recovery, but he wants to create an alcohol-free space for anyone. That starts with fun. And if we don't incorporate fun into the non-alcoholic spaces, then it's going to be a little bit harder to really pick up traction because that's what people ultimately want. They want social fun. Part of that fun is making sure patrons can taste a unique mix of spirits, spices, and fruits in their drinks that regular bars don't offer. I made a starfruit and lemongrass syrup mixed with a non-alcoholic spirit and a splash of a prickly pear and lime shrub, and we called that one Joyride. Back at the Sober Social, owner Aja Wolf says people ask her why they feel like they do if there's no alcohol in their drinks. And I'm like, what you feel is you feel relaxed. You feel engulfed in an intimate setting in a conversation with your friends. You look pretty. All of this, you're holding a glass. You, all of the ritual and the aesthetics around cocktail culture provides a feeling. And increasingly, young people are saying that's a feeling they don't need alcohol to find. For GPB News, I'm Amanda Andrews in Atlanta. The Atlanta Vibe will play its first ever home game tomorrow. The volleyball team is part of the Pro Volleyball Federation. And so far, so good. The Vibe is 2-0, having defeated teams from Omaha and Orlando last week. For Casey Evans, the creation of the league came at a perfect time. The 22-year-old Wadsworth, Ohio native put up incredible numbers playing for UGA. She holds the record for most sets played at Georgia and is a member of the 2000 Point Club, the 1000 Kill Club, and the 1000 Dig Club. But with college behind her, her future in volleyball was uncertain. I came to the realization it might be it for me. And then I got a couple phone calls from a few organizations for the PVF. Suddenly, a path forward opened. She entered the draft and wasn't selected. But the disappointment didn't last long. Within an hour of learning she wasn't drafted, Vibe head coach Todd Dagenet called. He said, hey, like, we want to have you as a undrafted free agent. And I took the opportunity right up. I was like, let's do this. She'd play for the Atlanta Vibe, just 50 miles from where she'd gone to school. Evan says the other Vibe players and coaches are great. It's been crazy for me to adjust with all of these great players. And I think that's what also makes it like so fun because it's like, holy crap, like I really have to develop a lot more stuff about me now. So like what more can I do to develop myself? Evans will have two dozen regular season games to possibly compete and grow as a player. Colleen Craig is the founder and owner of the Atlanta Vibe. She played at Cornell University. She went on to have a successful business career in finance and sports management. When I got to a point in my career where I wanted to give uh, start giving back. And so I took a look at the landscape and volleyball jumped out. When you start looking at the numbers and the information, it kind of became a no-brainer. A no-brainer, she says, because among women's high school team sports, volleyball has the most players, more than either soccer or basketball. Most people would say it's probably soccer. 
And that's not the case. And we're growing. In addition to the seven teams competing this year, three expansion teams are in the works. Craig says all of them will provide an opportunity for talented volleyball players to continue high-level competition after college without having to travel overseas. So it is a tremendous opportunity for the athletes to compete and for us to showcase what all the youth already know as a chosen sport amongst girls in the country. The Vibe hope to remain undefeated tomorrow as they host the San Diego Mojo at their home opener at Gas South Arena in Duluth. And that's it for this edition of Georgia Today. If you want to learn more about any of these stories, visit gpb.org slash news. And if you haven't yet hit subscribe on this podcast, take a moment, do it now. It'll keep us current in your podcast feed. If you've got feedback, we'd love to hear it. Email us at georgiatoday at gpb.org. If you caught the pun in the intro, you are among my people. Thank you. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.